Hey everyone and welcome to DeFacto. This is a podcast from the perspective of two students who are currently trying to survive the IB. I'm Ju'i. And I'm Amelia. And today, instead of revising for our mocks or acknowledging their existence, we're going to be talking about the cerebral cortex. So firstly, why the cerebral cortex? So before we start, let's have a quick look at the etymology because that's always quite fun. So the word cortex actually comes from the Latin word cortex, meaning bark, as in like the bark on a tree. And so the cortex is the outermost layer of something. And as such, the cerebral cortex is the outermost layer of the brain. And it's the actually the largest section of the brain. And it's split into two um into the left and the right hemispheres, which we'll have a look at in a bit more detail in a minute. So it's the cerebral cortex that gives the brain its characteristic wrinkly appearance. It contains ridges called gyri and valleys called circli. And the reason for these folds or ridges is to actually increase the surface area of the brain so that we can have more neurons. And it's this reason that we have such high functioning brain brain abilities um i was actually quite interested to find out that in some animals this part of the brain is actually smooth so if you look at a mouse's brain the cortex is not kind of like um all wrinkly it's just smooth and this is the case in animals associated with less high brain functions so it is quite an extraordinary part of the brain and as i said it's involved in higher functioning such as learning emotions and processing our senses and i was actually surprised to discover that although it's only a few millimeter thick millimeters thick it actually comprises about half of the brain's total weight so you can see this a really important part of the brain yeah and like considering the brain is so heavy already the fact that it's half of the brain's weight and it's just like the top and like the bark is kind of really cool to think about so what we are talking about is like how the cerebral cortex is split into a couple of lobes namely four lobes and as amina mentioned just now the brain is kind of split into two hemispheres right but there are lobes on like all four lobes are on both sides if that makes sense so the four lobes are um frontal parietal temporal and occipital lobes i'm not sure if i'm saying that right but basically they're divided by the succli and the gyri that amelia mentioned just now so the frontal is obviously at the front i mean you know if you press your forehead right now there probably is where your frontal lobe is and then the middle is kind of split into two sections like if you think about the top that's the parietal lobe like you know the part that faces the sky that's the parietal lobe and then the temporal lobe is the one that's closer to your feet for lack of a better descriptor and then the occipital lobe is the one at the back so just a note like while i was researching this when i was looking at it i was like okay the lobes are divided by gyri and sulci okay that makes sense and then i realized like gyri are bumps and sulci are grooves you know not like gyri grooves because when has science ever made sense so you know yeah that's a really helpful description of just kind of like the overall um what's in the cerebral cortex and as we'll see as we look at each individual lobe like everything in the human body they're all interlinked and they all the functions of all of them kind of overlap and actually in a lot of cases the kind of boundaries between the different lobes are not very clear cut but before we have a look at the different lobes let's look at what makes up the cerebral cortex which is gray matter so you've probably heard of the two types of tissue in your brain, the grey matter and white matter. But what actually are these? These are always kind of areas that 
have seemed, well, very grey to me, like I've never really understood them. But to put it simply, our grey matter contains mostly um, the somas of our neurons or the bodies, whilst the white matter contains the myelinated axons. So we can think of the structure of a neuron a bit like a tree. At the top, we have the cell body, which contains the nucleus, so it's kind of the control centre of the cell. Um, And coming off of this body, we have lots of branches called dendrites that attach to different neurons or um, receptors. Um, And it is this bit that makes up the grey matter. Coming out of this, um, coming out of the top of our tree is the trunk of the cell, which is called the axon. And this is what messages are sent down. So some axons have myelin, um, have myelin sheath around them, which speeds up the um, time taken for the uh, message to be passed down the axon. And it's this that makes up the white matter. And then the axon leads to the axon terminal, which is kind of like the root of the tree. Um, So it's actually the myelin sheath that makes white matter appear white because of its high um, fat content to protect the cell. So when I first researched this, I was a bit confused by how simple it was that, you know, the grey matter just contains the bodies and the white matter contains the axons. So unfortunately, it's not this straightforward as you can probably guess. Um, so as well as containing the cell bodies, grey matter can also contain unmyelinated axons, glial cells, which are kind of like accessory cells supporting functions in our central nervous system, and blood vessels, which is what gives the grey matter a kind of pinkish hue in real life. The white matter, as well as containing myelinated axons, can also contain a certain type of glial cells, which are called oligod oligodendrocytes which basically means they produce myelin and along with a few other types of cells which I don't really understand what they do but they're there. So whilst both the grey matter and white matter um, contain several different types of cells they are mainly created they are mainly formed of these somas and axons and so the way that these are arranged Um, they actually have different arrangements in the spinal cord and the brain. So in the spinal cord, we describe the kind of arrangement of the grey matter as a bit like a butterfly shape on the inside of the spinal cord. So it's grey on the inside, and then surrounding the kind of grey matter butterfly is the white matter. However, in the brain, it's the other way around, and grey matter is found on the outside and forms the majority of the cerebral cortex, and then white matter is primarily found in the deeper within the brain. Okay, I know you can't see me right now, but I was just like making like really shocked and like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense expressions, because if you think about it, right, you know how the brain is always presented as like this pinkish thing, and I was always like, that doesn't make any sense, like grey matter and white matter, right? So okay, the spinal cord is white because it's white matter, But, oh, it's because of the blood vessels. That makes so much sense. So that's actually really cool. And I just want to point out, I feel like for, like, a lot of people, dark, um, you know how, like, physicists have dark matter as in that thing that they don't know about? I feel like grey matter is that thing for biologists. So that's just a pretty cool thing to point out. But I think Amina made that really clear, and I I thought that was really cool, so. Okay, so let's get into the lobes. So, 
We thought we would start with the frontal lobe because it's at the front of your head. Great, great choice, I know, thank you. Um, so it, it is the largest lobe. So I thought, you know, I would start with some facts about the lobe. It is the largest lobe and it's right behind your forehead. Our lobes, um, frontal lobes in particular, are actually much bigger than other species. So as primates, you know, us and monkeys, they are much bigger than, for instance, um, other mammals. And that's why people think that the frontal lobes are important for reasoning and language, like higher order functions that other animals don't necessarily share. The frontal lobe maybe wasn't like the best thing to talk about first because it's actually the thing that develops last. It's the last part of your brain to mature. Like in some cases, it only finishes maturing in your late 30s, which is really interesting and which I will go more into why that's interesting later on. But it's also the last region of the brain to evolve, which might also be the reason why it's the last to mature. This part is not so much of a cool fact, but I just wanted to point out that actually the frontal lobes are the most common places of brain injury, which is really interesting. Okay, so let's move on to a story about the frontal lobe's discovery. So in 1848, a worker was, well, they, they had an accident, and the reason why they had this accident was because they were packing gunpowder to blast a tunnel through rock, and their head was slightly turned through it. So an accident happened due to one of a stray strikes, and then the rod, this is kind of graphic, went into his left eye and out through his skull. But... He survives without his left eye and much of his frontal lobe. So that's kind of incredible because, you know, without some parts of your brain, like the medulla, you will definitely, like, die on the spot. So he still survived. But people noticed that, like, before the accident, he was a really responsible and hardworking person. And it turns out that after the accident, he was really difficult to deal with, he swore a lot, and he was really disrespectful. So you can see that the frontal lobe seems to have something to do with personality changes. I apologize if you can hear the birds in the background. Apparently, they do not like the frontal lobe and have decided to be very, very loud. Anyway, that's not all that the frontal lobe controls. Oh, I know why. It's because birds don't necessarily have such a developed frontal lobe, so they're jealous. So ha. Anyway, um, the frontal lobe also controls voluntary movement of the opposite side of your body. So like, your left hemisphere controls the right side of your body and your right hemisphere controls the left side of your body. I thought I would go into an interesting digression here about the left-right debate. You know how your left brain controls the right side of your body and vice versa. However, have you heard about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? So its author was actually the one who proposed having a logical left side of your brain and an emotional right side of the brain. So this idea is one that's been popularized. I think it's just because it's a cool thing that a lot of people want to accept. But when actually researchers looked at people missing one or both sides of the hemispheres of their brain, they, they miss both logical and creative things. So while things are localized, like for example, your language is to the left side of your brain and your attention is to the right side of your brain, it varies by system and not actually by person. So it's not like, you know, they're naturally more creative or more... <coughs> I don't know why I coughed, I'm sorry. Um, more creative or more logical people. So in addition to that, your frontal lobes also control your attention and concentration, your speech and language uh, production, your working memory, you know, your recently acquired memories, reasoning and um, problem solving, your emotional own regulation, but also reading that of others, your personality, your motivation, impulse control, social behaviors, comparing objects and organization. So this is why I said it was interesting that it's the last to develop because I am not someone who's great with organization or impulse control or motivation and I can see where this is coming from because my frontal lobe is still not completely developed. 
or I, I hope so anyway. So if you don't have the frontal lobe, as you can see, a lot of things are affected and they correspond to its functions. So for example, when you don't have your frontal lobe, it's hard to maintain attention, cough, you have no motivation, you might get mood swings and you have poor impulse control. So that's what happens if you don't have your frontal lobe. What about if you have damage to it? So most common things that happen are head injury, as I said just now, because the frontal lobes are the most common site of head injury. Also stroke, infections, tumour and neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Let's talk about a stroke specifically because I think like that's something that strikes a lot of fear in people. So a stroke is basically what happens when there's no blood supply to part of your brain, so there's no oxygen. And you need oxygen, as we recently learned in biology, for aerobic respiration. Which, just briefly, you can carry out two kinds of respiration, anaerobic and aerobic. And aerobic basically means that you have oxygen. And the benefit of having oxygen is just that you can produce so much more energy. That's why we kind of need to rely on aerobic respiration, because we need more energy. Because if you don't, you die. So a stroke is actually really severe because think about it, like per minute you lose 2 million cells, which is huge. I know we have trillions of cells, but losing 2 million cells per minute is kind of crazy. So the most common causes of strokes are ischemic and hemorrhagic. So ischemic strokes are basically when you have severely reduced blood flow. So you know if your vessels are narrowed or blocked. That's what causes uh, ischemic stroke, just like what causes ischemic heart disease, when your blood vessels to the heart are severely narrowed or blocked. Whereas hemorrhagic is, you know, when a hemorrhage is when your blood vessels burst, when they leak or rupture. Or um, it's also caused by high blood pressures, aneurysms, trauma, or in some cases, ischemic strokes themselves. So your risk for strokes are heightened by high blood pressure, cigarette smoke, cholesterol, diabetes, heart failure such as cardiovascular disease, family history and age if you're bigger than if you're bigger, if you're older than fifty five years old. The consequences of strokes are paralysis, um it being hard to talk or swallow, memory loss, emotional, um like you can't control your emotions, pain, changes in behavior and you know you kind of tend to be more withdrawn as a result. So I also just thought we would go into like recognizing a stroke. So in seconds, you go from being okay to being weird. And the most important signs are your face drooping, arm weakness, like maybe you can't move it, or trouble talking, such as slurred speech. So you might get more symptoms over time. And the advice from WebMD is to loosen clothing so that you can breathe. So what happens when you go to the doctor? So, you know, you call an ambulance and the ambulance will take you to hospital. And when you get to the doctor, the doctor will usually take a physical exam and then do some tests to see how well you speak, for example, and then some blood tests. And then they'll take a CT scan, which basically makes an image of your brain so they can tell whether you had ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke and then treatment. So for ischemic, you know, since your blood vessels are narrowed, then you, they will give you a blood uh, call-up busting drug. Um, whereas if it's hemorrhagic, you will go into surgery. Okay, God, that was a lot of talking. So um, now that we've covered frontal lobes, I think um, we could move on to temporal lobes first. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially as I didn't fully appreciate that actually our frontal lobes aren't fully developed until we're 30. That's quite late and hopefully explains part of why I'm so unorganised and disorganised rather and unmotivated. So that's quite reassuring in a way. And also, um, that point about the man who had a stake through his eye, um, this is a guy called Phineas Gage, and I actually remember reading about, or talking about him in our TOK lessons, um, and with that, actually talking about kind of, like, 
how reliable emotion is as a way of knowing and how kind of dependent it like how um how much it kind of indicates our personality and stuff so that was quite an interesting um discussion so yeah looking at the temporal lobes um so these as G mentioned earlier are like at the bottom of your brain kind of behind your ears and they're split into three main gyros so we mentioned earlier the gyro ridges they're split into three main ridges which are the superior on top the middle in the middle and the inferior and the temporal lobes are involved with processing auditory information and also encoding memory. So for most people, we have a dominant and non-dominant temporal lobe. And for most people, the dominant lobe is the left side. And the dominant lobe is involved in understanding language and learning and remembering verbal information, whilst the non-dominant lobe is involved in um sorry, the dominant is involved in remembering verbal information, whilst the non-dominant lobe is involved in remembering non-verbal information, such as music. So, like with a lot of things, and as we saw with Phineas Gage, it's sometimes easier to understand the functions of a specific area in the brain when we see what happens when this area is damaged. So, damage to the temporal lobe can cause a variety of symptoms and I'll briefly kind of um, mention a few here so that it can cause kind of disturbance with selective attention to what we see in here, difficulty with identifying and categorizing objects, difficulty with learning and retaining new information, um, impaired factual and long-term memory, um, it can cause persistent talking, it can cause kind of difficulty recognizing faces, um, increased or decreased interest in sexual behaviour, emotional disturbances such as kind of being overly aggressive and also difficulty understanding spoken words which is a condition known as receptive aphasia. So as we can see a lot of these are kind of linked to understanding and language so we can see how important that is in the role of the temporal lobe. So the last uh, kind of symptom that I mentioned was this thing called receptive aphasia and another name for this is Wernicke's aphasia. And the Wernicke's area is um, an area in the middle of the um, temporal lobe, which um, basically controls human language. So it's named after a neurologist who was around in the 1800s called Carl Wernicke. And the word aphasia comes from the Greek word aphatos, meaning speechless. So Wernicke's aphasia affects the ability of someone to understand words. So speech is effortless, but the meaning is impaired. So to kind of give an example of this, I was watching a video of somebody, of a man named Byron, who had um, Wernicke's aphasia. And this was an example of kind of like a short conversation between an interviewer and Byron. So the interviewer says, hi, Byron, how are you? And Byron replies, I'm happy. Are you pretty? You look good. So although he was able to talk fluently, what came out didn't necessarily make sense. And the meaning of what he was trying to say was impaired. And the this kind of Wernicke's aphasia is caused by um, brain injury to this specific area called the Wernicke's area in the temporal lobe. Um, 
which could be caused by stroke, as GE talked about previously. So a bit more on what this Wernicke's area actually is. So like with a lot of discoveries, as I've said, um, Carl Wernicke discovered this area when observing what happens when it's damaged. So when we're understanding speech, there are two main areas involved. The Broca's area, which was discovered by Broca, and Wernicke's area, which is discovered by Wernicke. So whilst Broca's speech area is responsible for grammatical details and um, kind of like ordering of words, so it's kind of the spag police um, of speech in the brain, um, and so it ensures fluency, whereas Wernicke's area, as I mentioned, is involved in understanding um understanding language so whilst Broca's patients um, with Broca's aphasia also known as non-fluent aphasia were able to understand what was going on and what they were saying was understandable their speech was kind of like broken and the patients had difficulty getting out their words whereas with Wernicke um, their speech was fluent but it was meaningless and from this he was able to conclude that this brain region is responsible for understanding language and producing meaningful speech. And Broca's area is in the frontal lobe, right? Yeah, okay. That kind of just shows how like I feel like it works together. Because like if you have damage to one area, then you can't speak. But then if you have damage to the other area, then you cannot say what you mean to. So I feel like it just goes to show like how even like parts of the cerebral cortex work together. I thought it was also really interesting how you mentioned we had like a dominant and non-dominant area and I'm not sure what it depends on. Do you know if it depends on handedness? Just because you mentioned like most people have dominant left sides. I'm not actually sure but it would make sense because obviously handedness is caused by a dominant lobe so it would make sense, yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was really interesting because you know how you mentioned like the temporal lobes functions like left versus right depend on which side is dominant and actually in the parietal lobes which is like the next part that we're going to be talking about it depends on the side it doesn't depend on which part is dominant but you have like a dominant side that's kind of like stronger so i'll explain that in a while basically what the parietal lobes do is two main things one they regulate sensory information to form a single perception known as cognition so they regulate touch temperature pressure and pain like for example you know where you are being touched and kind of like how hard you're being touched that's things that are regulated here so it's because the somatosensory cortex is here which helps localize touch as i mentioned just now and also discriminate between temperature and pain and you can see how that's helpful because like probably not a good thing to like touch something hot and oh well actually they kind of go together but i mean i think it's still helpful to know the difference between the two anyway Something that's quite interesting is that the more sensory input that tends to come from an area, the more surface area that's used to process it. So just an example, right? You know how our hands touch a lot of things, as you can probably like see from the coronavirus and how we tend to disinfect our hands because they touch the most things. So fingers and hands, because they always touch a lot of things, actually there's a bigger surface area in the parietal lobes for these inputs, which I thought was pretty cool. Another thing that the parietal lobes like the other main function is that they construct a spatial coordinate system to represent the world around us. So basically it's like, you know, how you can figure out like how far I am from this screen, for example, or from the thing that I'm using to record. Figuring out distances between two things is one of the things that the parietal lobes do. So what happens if you have damage to your parietal lobes? You have 
Mm, a lot of interesting things like difficulty drawing, telling between left and right, spatial disorientation and navigation difficulties, but also things like it's hard to read, you can't write, can't do math, you don't know where things are in space, you can't focus visually, and you can't do complex movements. So you can see like it's really a range of movements. It's not just you know your visuals. It's also you know being able to move or being able to write or draw or do creative things. So as I mentioned just now, the left and right parietal lobes actually handle different functions. Damage to the left typically results in difficulties with language and writing, whereas the right tends to deal with spatial organization. So interestingly, I read that right-handed people have a slightly more active left hemisphere, as in, you know, they have better symbolism of letters and numbers because the left temporal uh, parietal lobes have to do with difficult and uh, uh, have to do with language and writing. So people with a slightly more active left hemisphere, i.e., right-handed people, are better at symbolism of letters and numbers. Whereas left-handed people have a more active right hemisphere in the sense that they are better at doing spatial distances. I'm not sure, I think an interesting thing would be looking at like how, you know how there are like a lot of questions on tests where it's like 3D things where basically like here's a cube and we've removed some small cubes from it and then you have to turn it in your head. I wonder if like that's something that people of a certain handedness can do better because of a more dominant brain function. I feel like it'd be interesting to look at that. But in any case, we still use both left and right parietal lobes, and I'm not actually sure how true it is Like that right-handed people might be better at letters and numbers, and left-handed people might be better at spatial distances. I'm not sure if that's actually true. So I am still a bit skeptical on it, and as is the case with a lot of things about the brain, they're still researching in it, so I think take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, it's really interesting understanding a bit about kind of like what handedness is and also different characteristics that go with different handedness. So the final part of the brain that we're, or the final part of the cerebral cortex that we're going to look at are the occipital lobes. And these are actually the smallest lobes in the cerebral cortex and they're located at the back of your head. And these are involved in visual perception, including kind of like depth perception and um, colour perception. So again, damage to these cause a lot of um, kind of problems with sight. So such as difficulty identifying colors, kind of color blindness, the production of hallucinations, um, visual illusions, a thing called word blindness, which is an inability to recognize words um, and kind of difficulties reading and writing. But I'm gonna talk about something that's pretty cool and kind of ties in all of the different lobes um, but starts in the occipital lobes. So last year in our psychology lessons our teacher introduced us to this experiment by a guy called Sperry and this was a split brain experiment and when he first introduced it he showed us a clip from House MD which is currently my favourite TV show I have to admit I watch it every night it is very good, but um, I'll kind of describe the experiment first um, and then kind of talk about what's happening. So firstly, what is split brain? Well, split brain is where the corpus callosum, which is kind of in the middle of your brain, and it's what connects the two hemispheres, is severed. So the two hemispheres kind of, they can't chat together anymore. They can no longer communicate with each other. And the reason that somebody might have a split corpus callosum is because it can actually be a treatment for very severe epilepsy. 
So, um, so in Sperry's experiment, split brain patients were put in front of a screen, which was split into two. So your left hand side of the screen, which your left visual field could see, and the right hand side of the screen, which your right visual field could see. So a word was shown on the right side of the um, screen and the patient was asked to say what he saw. All good so far. The patient was then shown a word on the left side of the screen. This time they claimed that they could not see the word. However, when asked to draw the word with their right hand, they successfully draw what they couldn't see. Okay, so this sounds a bit weird, so let's backtrack a bit. So when you look at an object, so put your hand in front of your kind of nose, everything to the right of your hand uh, gets sent, gets seen by the right eye and sent to the left side of your brain. And then everything on the left side gets seen by your left eye and sent to the right eye of your brain. So there's kind of this crossover when you look at something. So when the image, when the word was in the right visual field, the information was sent to the left hemisphere. As we've discussed, the Wernicke's area and Broca's area responsible for language in the prefrontal and in the temporal lobes are in the left hemisphere. So the patient could say what they saw because they've got the areas controlling language in that side. However, when it was shown on the left, the information was sent to the right-hand side of the brain, of, uh, to the right-hand side of the brain, and the right hemisphere can't speak. So although it was able to comprehend what it had seen, it had no way of communicating this to the left hemisphere. So it said it couldn't see anything. But the right-hand side of the brain can draw. So although it couldn't speak, it could draw what it had seen. And I mean, this is a bit confusing, but this really blew my mind when I first um, heard about it and really shows how important the kind of the crosstalk between the two hemispheres are. And when that crosstalk's broken, they essentially, they just can't chat with each other anymore. And um, you get some pretty weird things showing up. So I think this example really nicely ties together all of the different lobes that we've looked at um, and shows how all of them interact with each other. So we see with our occipital lobe and that then that influences our language in the temporal lobe and in the frontal lobes. And then that um, and then our, what we see also influences kind of how we write and what we write, um, which we use our parietal lobes for. So I think that really nicely ties together kind of all the functions a between the right and left hemisphere and also between the different lobes in the brain. I'm still not over the fact that you claim that you cannot see something, but you can draw it. <laughs> like, that is so cool. That feels like a superpower. But I think it also just goes to show, like, how incredible the brain is. And I feel like with this episode, we've kind of, like, concluded the parts that we wanted to talk about in the brain. We kind of went through the brain's anatomy and separated it into three episodes where we talked about the different parts. Honestly, it's been so long, I've forgotten what the first part was called. I know the second part was called limbic system. Oh, the old brain. We did the old brain, the limbic system, and the cerebral cortex. So I think it's been really interesting. And I was just telling Amila, like, before this, like, I know we separated it by anatomy, but it feels like it doesn't make any sense. Because I can say, look, the frontal lobes control the your motor coordination. But then, like, a few weeks ago, we talked about that motor coordination in a different part of the brain. And you can say, like, oh, the, occip- the occipital lobes, how does it make sense that your vision gets processed at the back of your brain? Well, it just... 
it doesn't only go to the back of your brain, it goes to other parts as well. So I think it's just like really interesting to consider how ultimately you can learn the brain however you want and we've tried to do it by anatomy here as well as like by its higher order functions. As you notice, you know, we talked about the most high order functions, the cortex at the end, but I feel like it's just like something that's kind of studied as a mass, like all together. So hopefully you've enjoyed this as much as we have. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. We definitely enjoyed kind of exploring different areas of the brain and going a bit more into depth into the most complex organ in the human body. Um, And I hope it's given you a bit of an insight into kind of what the brain does and what different parts do. But as we said, what this kind of mini series has really highlighted to us is that the brain is so interconnected and, you know, everything so many different parts are responsible for things like motor and vision and no we can't really pinpoint one specific part to a specific function so yeah thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next time thank you and bye